listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judea and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above all the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach in his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our second reading comes from Romans 13, 11 through 14. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our Savior is nearer now than he was when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently. uh, as the daytime, not corroding in drunkenness and not in sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thanks, Austin. Well, before the Anglican Church emerged in the middle of the 16th century, worship in England had been primarily in Latin. So you get together, the problem was none of the people spoke Latin except for the priests. Get together for service and you couldn't understand anything. None of the people owned a Bible. And when it came to like the apex of the worship service, when it's time to receive communion, the people sat in the pews and watched the priest receive communion on their behalf. And as the the Church of England was emerging, this is the tradition of which we're now a part, its first worship architect was this guy named Thomas Cranmer. And Cranmer wanted uh, the Christians in England to be the most Bible-reading, Bible-loving, prayerful people on the planet. And so as, as the Anglican Church began to emerge, they had some distinctive practices. One of them was they followed this thing called the Book of Common Prayer, which is basically a fancy guide to reading the Bible, like a plan for reading the Bible and praying Scripture. They, they also put the Bible into English, and they also returned the communion, the sacraments, to the people. They had this groundbreaking idea called liturgy. And the liturgy was really a refreshing thing, having watched the priests putting on the show in another language all those years, the people got together and they got to participate in the leadership of the church. 
but one of the leadership of the worship, but one of the really significant things was getting a Bible in their hands in their own language. And Cranmer put together this, this personal daily Bible reading plan for the people called the daily offices. So every day the people would be reading the Bible. In fact, the way that his reading plan went on, you're meant to read in the morning and then again in the evening. If you follow the daily offices, Anglicans would read the Old Testament all the way through one time every year. They'd read the New Testament all the way through two times every year, and they would pray the Psalms, all 150 of them, every month of the year. They're meant to be really soaked in the Scriptures. You see this from some of the poets, like Herbert and John Donne. Their, their imagination is just soaked with Scriptures, people who had been trained to read morning and evening the Bible as they went along. But Cranmer also had this vision for every week the Scriptures being read to the whole church. This is called the lectionary. In the lectionary, during every worship service, you were going to hear lots of Scripture read. You'd hear something from the Old Testament. You'd hear an epistle. You'd definitely hear some psalms. And you'd always hear a reading from the Gospels. And as we have been, you know, growing into this Anglican identity and practice, for Advent, we're going to take on this practice of the four readings every Sunday. And it really flows from the advice that Paul gave to Timothy. It was actually a command. Paul told young Pastor Timothy, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture and the prayers. And the thing that is really powerful about reading the lectionary is it's, it's, it's readings that you didn't pick. If I'm going to preach a sermon, I'm going to cherry pick the text that I already like the most, that already confirm the view that I have on the world. But when you're assigned a text, it's like, all right, God has already prepared the feast. Now let's see in what way should this be prepared for our people. And so I'm doing this as a kind of like step of obedience and also a creative constraint for the season of Advent, relying on four scriptures and saying, all right, Lord, these four passages from four different parts of the Bible, where's the common thread through all of them? Where's the one message that you want to give to your people that I should pay attention to? And so every week for the season of Advent, we're going to continue what we're doing and have a psalm read in the middle of music. Noel did that for us today, Psalm 122, one of the Psalms of Ascent. We're, we're going to have two teaching texts, so Austin read for us from Isaiah and then from Romans, and then I'm going to work the fourth text into my sermon every week. And it's really going to be fun, a fun challenge for me, but also a great opportunity for us to pay attention to what does the Lord want to say to us through the reading of the Scriptures. So I just wanted to let you know about that. The other tool that we've been given, some of you perhaps have, are, are familiar other than like you know, the, the wine advent calendar or the cheese advent calendar or the Mickey Mouse advent calendar that you got at home, that the, this whole idea of advent actually did not come from commercial America. It's an ancient practice. And contrary to public understanding, it's really not a countdown to Christmas. This season of advent is uniquely focused on, when the church uniquely focuses on the second return of Jesus. There's evidence to show as late as the 4th century that there was a season of penitence, like repentance, and fasting in December that had no connection to Christmas whatsoever. In fact, Pope Leo the Great, we have many records of effectively sermon series he preached in December that had nothing to do with Christmas. Advent was a time in which the church focused on and yearned for and cried out for the return of Jesus to renew and restore all things. Uh, we were singing um, 
Our Father, singing the Our Father, and there's that, in the bridge, it just echoes, let heaven come, let heaven come, let heaven come. And if we appreciated the gift that that will be, the paradigm shift that that will be when Christ returns to bring heaven to earth, and cancer is a thing of the past, and divorce is a thing of the past, and adultery is a thing of the past, and abuse is a thing of the past, and pornography is a thing of the past, and all the things that plague the human heart, God rids from the human race. And even the disruptions we see in the climate and like the, the earth itself is crying out for God to return, to re renew and restore all things. This is what we're yearning for, and this is what we're giving our attention to in the season of Advent. If you're unfamiliar with the church calendar in general, uh, Fleming Rutledge, who's a, a prolific uh, author, said the other seasons in the church calendar follow the events in the historical life of Christ. His incarnation, which of course is Christmas, the manifestation to the Gentiles, this was an even bigger deal than Christmas in the early centuries of the church, which was primarily Gentile. So they really loved the wise men. The season of Epiphany was all about this. Uh, his path to crucifixion, this was Lent, his passion and death, Holy Week, the resurrection, this is celebrated in Easter, the return to the Father's right hand, ascension, and the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, with Trinity Sunday to round it off doctrinally. Advent, however, differs from the other seasons in that it looks beyond history altogether and awaits Jesus Christ's coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we begin with Christmas, we'll be marching through the life of Jesus, but in this season we're looking forward to a date unknown and a time unknown when he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So we will all fail spectacularly at this, but the encouragement and the admonition in the season of Advent is to avoid Christmas creep. We're going to try hard not to sing Christmas carols. We sing, oh come, oh come, that's a good Advent song. We're not going to jump into the Christmas carols until we get to Christmas Eve. We want to avoid Christmas keep and keep the emphasis on this season of Jesus' return. Advent is meant to be a future-oriented season. It's, it's looking forward to what Jesus is going to do at the end of the ages. And in our readings today, we see the centrality of time. As we read it again, you're going to notice that you're going to see the centrality of time and this call to be people who can discern the times. There's this throwaway line in one of the Samuels or one of the Chronicles where it talks about the sons of Issachar who were able to discern the times and knew what Israel should do. Advent teaches us to be men and women who can discern the times. In Isaiah chapter 2, the prophet is given a vision of a time when Jerusalem is symbolically elevated above all of the other places on earth. It's elevated as the epicenter of wisdom and instruction. Here, verses 1 through 3 again. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
Revelation picks up this imagery of a renewed Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven prepared as a bride ready for her bridegroom. The reading from the Psalms, again, Psalm 122, I had to think really hard about how to help that make a little bit more sense when, we did, when Noel did the reading in, in service. But, but the psalm reading, again, pictures Jerusalem as being the epicenter of wisdom and knowledge where people stream to it to go and get there the thrones for judgment. You see, Jerusalem, again, is this place where people come to receive the wisdom of God. And Isaiah, in this like, vision that he has, sees the mountain of the Lord being established and lifted up above all other places for wisdom. And it says this will happen at a particular time. When is that? Anybody? <laughs> in the last days. That's what it says. In the last days. He says that the result of Jerusalem's being centralized and elevated is that there will be peace between conflicting parties. And there will be the dismantling of the war and the weapon industry. Verse 4 says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They'll have no more need for weapons. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. In the last days, Isaiah sees this vision where the war and the weapon industry comes to an end. There were two mass shootings this week. There were probably two last week, and there may be two more this week. I check our local news basically every morning when I wake up. Somebody was always shot overnight in Tulsa. And this is wrong. It's wrong that people should have to live in fear. It's wrong. There's this kind of violence exists on earth, and God will not tolerate it forever. In a view of the violence and the evil and the carnage of the present age and in preparation for the age to come, the prophet, seeing what is to come, calls the people of Israel to action. Verse 5, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. When will these last days of peace be established? When will war be no more? Jesus in a gospel reading from Matthew 24, says about that day or hour, no one knows. So the next time some bozo writes a book about 24 reasons Jesus is coming back in 2024, don't buy it. When people call their shot, they're wrong. About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But, like expecting parents who pack their go bag because they know that labor could happen at any time, Jesus tells his people to be ready. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. Jesus then gives us a gift about how to think about the age in which we live. How do we to think about this time? This is a time of waiting. It's also a time of anticipation where we know it could happen at any moment. Romans, similarly, that Austin read for us, calls our attention to time. Do this, understanding the present time. 
The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. Paul gives some imagery to help us understand what, how are we to understand the times in which we live. We are living in the dark before the dawn, that a dawn is coming. The era is going to change. Though the dawn is coming, it is still a period of darkness. And I hope I don't need to give substantial evidence because we see it all around us. We're living in an age of darkness and confusion. I've been getting to know this guy uh, who's an Anglican priest in Canada. And he's, he, was, he tweeted this week about what life is like for him in his context. And he's, post, he's, he's describing Canada as being very, very uh, openly anti-Christian in his country. He said, I'd like to speak to U.S. Christians from the future, a.k.a. Canada. <laughs> but not in a good way. Not like in a maple syrup way. And I want to say, brace yourselves. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better across the board. But don't despair. Don't gloat. Pray. Really pray. Carry on. Do the work. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Stay humble. If you've been straying from the gospel, repent and return. It's the only thing that we have to offer. Paul similarly tells us what our newfound time awareness should provoke us to do. He said, So, in view of the time in which we live, in the dark before the dawn... Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. Let's behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. And he uses, like other New Testament authors, a lot of this dark and light imagery. The world is still in the dark of night, but we're meant to clothe ourselves with the armor of light. We're meant to act in the night as if it's already daytime. Conducting ourselves in such a way that we have nothing to hide, we have nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, John talks about this in his first epistle. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. If we live as if we have nothing to hide, we're living clothed in the armor of light. We don't have to sneak around each other. No, we can have fellowship with one another. And Paul reminds us the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Now, maybe you're cynical like me, and you're like, hasn't literally every generation thought this is the worst the world can get, and surely Jesus must be coming soon? And it reminds me of this image I saw recently on Instagram of a guy who's, you know, he's like a, uh, encouraging you to think creatively and persevere in creative work. The, you probably can't see the words from where you are, but it says, this is pointless. No progress, no progress, no progress. At the point of giving up, this is pointless. If were you to just persevere, you might have that creative breakthrough. And I think similarly for us and thinking about the return of Christ to renew and restore all things, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. We are closer now than we've ever been to the time in which Jesus will return to renew and restore everything. 
This scriptural view of time and the call to discern the times stands in conflict to the way that most of us relate to time. We primarily think about time in terms of a market economy. Uh, You're wasting my time. Time is money. You're paying for my time. I need more time. I'm out of time. And this Western view of time focuses on efficiency and production. We could call this a chronos view of time. I almost showed you a picture of the Greek god Kronos, but it was a little bit too, like, gory and vulgar, I think, for a worship service. You can Google it on your own, and when you do, you'll see this terrifying-looking monster biting out the heart of its young. And that is a Kronos view of time. It's all about efficiency and jamming as much into it as you can so you can make the most money, so you waste nothing. If there is a purpose ascribed to this time, it is efficiency and speed. But this is not the way that the Bible, certainly the texts that we've read today, relate to time. When Isaiah speaks of the last days and David says, my times are in your hands, and Jesus speaks of the day and the hour unknown, and when Paul urges us to understand the present time, they're not speaking of the monetary value of time, but of the meaning assigned to the time that we are in. Time is weighted with the purposes of God. When the the people of God are commanded each week to practice a Sabbath, it's helpful for us to ask ourselves, what is this time for that gets us at the telos or the purpose or the end for which this day was consecrated? What is this day for? This day is for rest. And this reflects what we could call a kairos view of time. And a kairos view of time asks, what is this time for? Those of you who are employed and you go to work during the day, this time is for you to work hard as working for the Lord as you do, you know, the stuff that makes up your vocation. And as you exit, you could ask again, what is this time for? Well, it may be time to build friendships. It may be time to tend to the details of your life. It may be time to read to your children. It may be to serve other people. But asking the question, what is this time for, helps us orient ourselves, take ourselves out of the chronos view that eats its young, and into the, the, a view of time that's weighted with the purposes of God, asking, what is this time for? The, the reason that these texts, I think, were selected is because we're meant to think in this kairos perspective as we enter the season of Advent. The church has understood that this time, this season of Advent is for something. It's not for indulgence, but for fasting and repentance. It's not for moral looseness, but a return to integrity. It's not for sleepwalking, as as Paul in Romans gives that imagery. It's not a time for sleepwalking or being on autopilot, but it's a time for waking up. It's also a time for mourning. But to to mourn means to see the world as it really is, and the world as great and beautiful as it is, is also so, so far from what God intended at creation. And we'll see in the age to come when things are renewed how much more beautiful they were meant to be when God more than restores what was lost at Eden. 
It's a time for mourning, but it's also a time for yearning, a time to anticipate the day when the sun rises on the earth and our Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead and to restore and renew all things. Peter gets at this in his second letter. He said, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, with me, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. That's like... Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The earth and everything will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. I wish I knew what that meant. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. What is this time for? There's something that happens in a worship service when you're there that definitely can't happen online. And it definitely can't happen just listening to the sermon removed from the context of the worship and the people. And there's some kind of tenderizing effect that that just happens, can happen in a person's life who's open to it. And you, you ask the question, I ask the question, what is this time for? This is a time for introspection and reflection especially in view of the the fact that we're going to be given the opportunity to receive Holy Communion. communion, It's a time for us to examine ourselves. You might consider, if, if Jesus were to return this Advent, would he find us ready to live as citizens of the kingdom? Are we so accustomed to living in the dark and lurking in the shadows, would we find ourselves blinded by the light of day when the sun rises and Christ returns? Are there areas of your life where you've been tolerating like a wishy-washy perspective on, on sin? Are there areas where you've been lurking in the shadows? Have you been on autopilot or sleepwalking through parts of your life and the Lord Jesus would invite you to wake up Are you operating in a chronos view of time where you're just trying to squeeze in as much activity, especially it feels like it's going to make you successful as you possibly can, going to make you the most wealth that you can, when instead the Lord would be inviting you to reframe from a chronos view where you're eating your young to a kairos view that sees time as a gift weighted with the purposes of God? An invitation for each of us on this day and in this season is is to repent, ask the Lord to change our mind and to change our heart, and also to put our faith in the Lord Jesus. That just as He came, He tabernacled among His people. So He died for our sins, He rose from the dead, and Christ who died, Christ is risen. This same Christ will come again to restore all things. Invited today to repent and to put our faith in Jesus. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, there's so many things that vie for our time and attention. Every now and then we have this gift of clarity where it feels like, yeah, I get it, I get it. We get pulled away, we get distracted. Our sin, like, uh, you know, with, with Cain, Lord, you said to Cain, sin is lurking at the door and it wants to have a mastery over you. And we feel that. We feel it lurking at our door and sometimes we leave the door wide open. We lose perspective. We do the things that we don't want to do and the good that we want to do, that we don't do. And we need you to save us more completely, Lord Jesus. I'm confident that so many of us in this room have put our faith in Jesus to, to forgive our sins, but now, Jesus, we need you to work in our lives to sanctify our hearts and our desires. And in this time that you've waited with your purposes to call your people to repentance and to yearn for your coming, I pray that your spirit would generate a repentant heart in each of us, that you'd help us to be liberated from slavery to chronos time, and help us to be attentive and aware of what you want to do. Lord, I, I, I sense that there are specific things that a couple of people here may, may need to surrender to the Lord. I pray that you give them the courage today to say, I'm leaving that at the altar as I come to receive communion. Lord Jesus, we love you and we ask for your help. I'm going to pray this prayer together. It'll be on the screen. It's a prayer just for today. We pray, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit. Probably should have been an amen on there, so we say amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.